Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for January 8th, 2023. This is the first Sunday in the season of Epiphany, and the first Sunday of the Epiphany season is always the baptism of our Lord. I'm recording this today with the uh, urban vibe of a jackhammer outside, courtesy of the city of Boise, so we'll see how this recording goes. But today, the gospel lesson we're looking at is Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, which is Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism. And the baptism of Jesus is a big deal. And one of the ways the Bible makes this clear is that you find um, Jesus' baptism recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And John alludes to it, references it as well in in John chapter 1. Consider that Jesus' birth isn't even mentioned in all of the Gospels. Mark omits it completely. Um, John has his mystical beginning and doesn't really record Jesus' birth either. So Jesus' baptism gets more coverage in the Gospels than does his actual birth. So the baptism of Jesus is a big deal. It's the start of his ministry, which is also one of the reasons why the baptism of Jesus kicks off the season of Epiphany. The word Epiphany means a revealing, an enlightenment, a discovery. The word Epiphany comes from the Greek word epiphina, which means to shine upon. The idea of a light shining upon someone and enlightening them. So, in in cartoons, when somebody has a great idea, when they make a new discovery, a a light bulb appears above their heads. Um, In the season of Epiphany, people are discovering Jesus. The Messiah has come. God is in the flesh. And now that he's 30 years old, he's making himself known in his public ministry And his public ministry begins with his baptism by John the Baptist. So again, our gospel reading for our study today is Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Rather short, I'll read the whole thing, then we'll come back and, and comment on it verse by verse. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. All right, now uh, I'll look at this a little bit more closely, verse by verse. Verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, to be baptized by him. Now, Jesus is mentioned by name in verse 13, which should 
maybe be no surprise, but on the other hand, the name Jesus has been used pretty sparingly in the first three chapters of Matthew. The first time you hear his name is when the angel visits Joseph to tell him that Mary has been faithful, that she has uh, conceived as the Son of God. And the angel says to, to Joseph in Matthew 1 verse 21, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, after that, in the early chapters of Matthew, Jesus is referred to as as perhaps the boy or the child, but his name is used very little until you get to this story when he's now 30 years old or so. And that helps bridge the, uh, the readings between that announcement in Matthew 1 and our text for this Sunday. Because Joseph was to name Jesus Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Fast forward to our gospel reading, and here we're at the Jordan River, where John the Baptist has been calling sinners to repentance. He's been baptizing them with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, John has a gathering of people who need to be saved from their sins. And who shows up? Jesus. Why is he named Jesus? Because he is the one who will save them from their sins. So Jesus appears where sinners are to start his work as the Savior. He comes to the Jordan to be baptized by John the Baptist. Now, we take that for granted, but it's kind of a surprising statement for the first readers of Matthew. After all, John has been preaching that sinners need to repent because the Messiah is coming with a winnowing fork in his hand. He is coming to judge the sinner. He is coming to to cast the chaff into the fire. He's coming with, with power and might. And when Jesus appears at the Jordan River, he doesn't stand as judge. He doesn't start exercising his power to get rid of sinners. Instead, he comes in lowliness and humility to be baptized just like one of them. This perplexes John the Baptist. I mean, after all, he's the one who's been preaching that the Messiah comes with power and might. And now Jesus comes to be baptized. And so if Jesus needs to be baptized with the baptism of sinners for the forgiveness of sins... Does that mean that Jesus needs to repent? Does that mean that Jesus needs to be forgiven? Does that mean that Jesus is not yet saved? Of course, you and I know that none of those things are true. John the Baptist is kind of puzzled, though, why Jesus gets in line to be baptized. Furthermore, John the Baptist has preached that Jesus is so much greater than he that John is unworthy to untie Jesus' sandals. And now Jesus comes to submit to baptism and to be baptized by John. Everything seems upside down. And that's why John, all of this is why John tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized by saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? So in verse 15, Jesus answers him saying, 
Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Um, let it be so now. The, the, the verb there is maybe better translated permit this to happen. It's actually the same word from which we get the verbs to release or even to forgive. So Jesus tells John the Baptist that this should be permitted, that he should be baptized. And this is for the purpose of fulfilling all righteousness. Now, if you read through the Old Testament where it speaks of the righteousness of Yahweh, the righteousness of of the Lord God, especially in the book of Psalms, but elsewhere as well, the righteousness of Yahweh is especially mentioned in reference to his saving deeds. That's kind of remarkable, too, because you would think that God being righteous... When you heard about his righteousness, you'd hear how much he he needs to judge the sinner for their unrighteousness. But as the Old Testament develops, and especially as I said in the Psalms, it refers to his righteousness in relation to his saving deeds to redeem mankind. With that in mind, then, Jesus' statement makes a whole lot of sense. Let it be so now. Permit me to be baptized, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus' baptism at the Jordan is part of the plan of salvation. It's one of God's saving deeds so that you and and I might have the kingdom of heaven. And really what's happening here at the Jordan is that Jesus is announcing that he's taking the place of sinners. If the people in the water are sinners, then he gets in line with them to say, I'm going to take your place. He's going to become the one who bears their sins to the cross. So, kind of an illustration I've used in the past. It has its limitations, but, but maybe this is helpful. At my first parish, we had vacation Bible school. I was a small parish in a small town, so VBS was pretty small. We'd have maybe 12, 15 kids or so. And so they'd spend an hour, hour and a half in class and doing crafts. And then be snack time. But before snack time, they had a chance to go outside and play. And outside the church was an unmown field that was full of wild onions and dust. So they'd run around this field playing, and of course their hands would get dirty and dusty before they had their snack. And so when the playtime ended outside, we'd have them line up on the the porch, the, the front deck of the church. And on that deck, there would be a table, and the table would have a, um, a basin of soapy water, a basin of rinse water, a roll of paper towels, and then the snack. And the kids would line up and they'd, they'd put their hands in the soapy water and wash off the dirt. And then they'd put their hands in the rinse water to rinse the soap off their hands. And, and then they'd dry them off with a paper towel and then they'd get their snack and they could eat it with, with clean hands. And that worked well for, what, 12, 15 kids or so because there was enough water and enough soap in that basin. But imagine if you had 10,000 people washing their hands in that same small basin of water. 
By the time the 10,000th kid stuck his hands in that water, when he pulled them out, they'd be dirtier than they were before because he'd have everybody else's dirt on his hands too. That's the image to keep in mind as Jesus is baptized. At least it's an image to keep in mind. As all these people get in the Jordan River to be baptized, to have their sins washed away, Jesus goes in with them. And as their sins are washed off of them in this baptism, it's as if all their sins are washed onto Jesus when he is baptized. That's the meaning of his baptism. He is taking their place, the place of sinners, to go to the cross and die in their place. He's identifying with all those sinful people because before God, he's going to suffer the wrath for their sins on the cross so that they can be forgiven. His baptism then is part of the saving plan and that's why it is a fitting thing to fulfill all righteousness. So, John the Baptist first objects. Jesus asks him to permit it, tells him, I guess is a better way to say it, tells him to permit it, and then John consents because this is part of God's plan for salvation. And then we read this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. Now, when I was just a little kid in Sunday school and I heard that, I thought, well, of course the heavens were open because the dove had to get out somehow so it could descend upon Jesus. And that is absolutely not the point that Matthew was making. Luther, I think, sums it up very well when he says, when Jesus is baptized, it's, it's a public announcement that he's on his way to the cross to die for sinners. And so heaven is now open for sinners. So when Jesus is baptized, the heavens open and they never close again. So heaven remains open for you and me because Jesus was baptized and from there he went to the cross and died for us that we might have eternal life. Along with that, which I think is a beautiful image, this also might be an allusion to Isaiah 64, uh, verses 1 and 2, which begins, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. So back in Isaiah 64, uh, the prophet declares that, uh, that the Messiah will come rending the heavens and, 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 and thus God will make his presence known among the peoples. And here is Jesus, God in the flesh, making his presence known by his baptism and the heavens open because the Messiah is there. All right, so the heavens open. Then we read um, the second part of verse 16. And he, Jesus, saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
We, uh, we read here that Jesus saw the Spirit descending. As far as we know, nobody else saw the Spirit descending. Jesus sees the Spirit of God descending, which is a great reference to the Holy Trinity. The Son sees the Spirit sent by the Father, and the Father, of course, is also about to speak. So here at Jesus' baptism, all three persons of the Trinity make themselves evident. They make clear that they are there, that they are all participating in, in this plan for your salvation. Now, the Spirit of God descends like a dove to rest on Jesus. And um, there's really not a lot of consensus on why the Holy Spirit chooses the form of a dove. A lot of debate back and forth. This is the the one that I like. Um, In Genesis chapter 1... At creation, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's verse 1 of Genesis. In verse 2, we read that the Spirit is hovering above the waters at creation. Now, fast forward to Genesis chapter 8, which is after the flood. And the flood is sort of a reboot of creation as God washes away the wicked and saves righteous Noah and his family. In chapter 8, 11, as, as the floodwaters recede, as, as creation is, is, is made evident once again, um, Noah sends out a dove. And it's a dove that brings back an olive leaf to show that there, there is life after the flood. So at creation, you have the Holy Spirit present. And, and, and the Spirit is thus participating in the creation of the heavens and the earth. At the end of the flood, at this kind of re-creation, temporary of creation, um, a dove is present. And so between Holy Spirit and dove, you have kind of a, uh, a new creation theme going between Genesis 1 and Genesis 8. Here at Jesus' baptism, he has come to create us anew, to, to uh, take away our sin and to raise us up as God's holy children. So... I would suggest to you anyway that the Holy Spirit arriving as, as, as a dove, descending like a dove, is in fact a reminder to us that, that Christ makes us new creations in him. The Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove and came to rest on him. And then we read in verse 17, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, part of this is an announcement by God the Father that he approves of the plan. It's not that Jesus became the, uh, the rebellious teenager at the age of 30 and decided to hang out with sinners instead of do what God sent him to do. Rather, God's proclamation here declares that what Jesus is doing is according to his plan for salvation. It is one of his works of righteousness to save us. But there's something else going on here. And remember that Jesus is being baptized to take the place of sinners. Another theme of Jesus' ministry that's evident in Matthew and elsewhere is that Jesus comes to do what the people of Israel could not and did not do. 
So, for instance, um, the, the people of Israel are in the wilderness for 40 years and they spend their whole time grumbling against the Lord. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days without food, constantly goaded by the devil, and he obeys his father perfectly. The Israelites get bread from heaven every day and still complain that God isn't feeding them well. Jesus fasts for those 40 days and still trusts completely in his father. We can find all sorts of... um, of examples where Jesus is doing what Israel failed to do during his ministry. And along with that, I would point you also to a couple of verses in um, in the Old Testament. One is from Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. This is when God first sends Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And one of the things that Moses is to say to Pharaoh in Exodus 4.22 is, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Likewise, in Hosea 11, verse 1, the Lord declares, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So there's a theme in the Old Testament that the nation of Israel, all the people together, are considered a beloved son by God. And of course, what does the beloved son Israel do throughout the Old Testament? Israel continues to rebel against God until finally Israel is is divided and decimated and conquered. Jesus comes to take the place of sinners. He comes to bear their sin away and die with it on the cross. And in return, what does he give to sinners? He gives credit for his righteousness. So, when you and I are forgiven for our sins, God looks at us and says, I see you're wearing Jesus' righteousness. The kingdom of heaven is yours because he's taken your sin away. Now, all that said... The Father's proclamation in Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. When Jesus takes the place of sinners, when he becomes a sin-bearer, he, he becomes then um, guilty of all the sins of that Old Testament people of Israel. If he takes their sins away... Their sins are gone, and they are the beloved Son once again. So when God the Father says at Jesus' baptism, This is my beloved Son, sure, he's referring to Jesus, but he's also declaring, And now my beloved Son Israel is righteous before me because Jesus has taken all of their sins, all their grumbling, all their complaining, all their idolatry, all their transgressions away. Because Jesus is the sin-bearer, God's people are now sinless again because he bears their sins away. And of course, that's not just referring to, to the nation of the Jews. That refers to all who trust in God. For you are also now the new Israel. You are God's people. And so you are God's beloved son because Christ has taken your sins away.
So Jesus identifies with sinners by being baptized to bear their sins away. And now in your baptism, he works by water and the word to take your sins away. And as he was baptized with water, so you are baptized with water. And as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were present at Jesus' baptism, you have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the triune God is at work for your salvation even now. Your baptism saves you, takes away your sins, because Jesus was baptized, because he took your sins on himself, and because he bore them to the cross. God be praised for that. And with that, a quick look at the Old Testament reading for this day, which is paired well with, uh, with our gospel reading. The Old Testament reading for the first Sunday of Epiphany, series A, is Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. And it begins, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Well, who is the servant? The servant was supposed to be Israel, God's chosen people. However, Israel has a long track record by Isaiah of failing to do the right thing and of sinning against God. We talked about the grumbling in the wilderness before. We talked about their sins in the wilderness before. That doesn't stop when they get to the promised land. So, for instance, they were supposed to conquer Canaan entirely, drive out all the, uh, the Canaanites from the land. Um, and that was both to acquire the promised land and as a judgment upon the Canaanites for their, for their um, horrible, unrepentant sin. But they failed to cleanse the land of sin. They failed to get rid of the Canaanites completely. Because Israel failed to do all these things, because God's chosen people failed, now the servant in Isaiah 42 verse 1 is in fact Christ. The servant who takes their place and who suffers in their stead. So, um, in in, uh, Matthew 3, we had God the Father declare... This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now we have him saying, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. What does the Lord next declare in Isaiah 42? I have put my spirit upon him, which is evident in Matthew 3 as the spirit descends upon Jesus. And then the Lord declares, he will bring forth justice to the nations. By the way, I have put my spirit upon him. Is another great Trinitarian phrase. The father puts his spirit on the Messiah, his son. And now the son has come to bring justice to the nations. And remember how John the Baptist was surprised that Jesus came so humbly How would you expect, hearing Isaiah speak, how would you expect the Messiah to bring justice to the nations? Probably to stand as judge and bring about the condemnation that all the unrepentant people deserve. 
But how does the Messiah bring forth justice? This is startling. Isaiah 42, verse 2 and following. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So rather than knock heads together and take names, the Savior comes in utmost humility. Far from condemning sinners for their sin, he doesn't even break bruised reeds. And yet, he brings forth justice. The text goes on, verse 4, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So remember, Old Testament Israel failed to conquer all of Canaan. They kind of got tired of carrying that out. And, and, and so they, they permitted Canaanites to continue to live in the land. And especially they never, as far as we know, conquered the coastlands. Here we hear the Savior is going to bring uh, justice to all, coastlands included, in his lowly and humble way. Verse 5, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. You have um, a big description there, four verbs long of God in his creative power. So God who made all things all things that were then messed up by Adam's sin, God who created all things is about to make a proclamation to the people of this fallen world. And he says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. So the Lord declares to the people that his servant who receives his spirit certainly has his blessing. The servant is called in righteousness. He is guarded by God, and he is a covenant for the people. Through the servant, God is making a covenant that people might be his people, that they might be saved. The servant is a light for the nations, thus for all nations, Jews and Gentiles both, to open the eyes that are blind. If you read further in 42, uh, chapter 42 of Isaiah, you'll find that they are blind in sin, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon because they're in bondage to sin, from the prison those who sit in darkness. He goes on, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So Yahweh does not share his glory with another, and yet he... Uh, he accompanies and protects and, and blesses his servant, the Messiah, who is in fact the second person of Yahweh. 
And he declares that the former things have come to pass, and now he declares new things. Because in the Messiah, in Christ, he makes all things new, and he makes sinners who are destined to return to the dust into new creations. And where does God make you into a new creation for the sake of Christ? That's right, in holy baptism by water and the word. So here in Isaiah 42, briefly in summary, Yahweh declares, He sends his servant and puts his spirit upon him, which we see at Jesus' baptism. Jesus comes to make all things new. And that's again that creation idea that, that, that we have with the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Um, and as Christ then makes you a new creation in holy baptism, that you might be among his people forevermore. So it's a beautiful lesson that, that, that demonstrates that even while Jesus comes in lowliness and humility, he comes with the power and authority of God himself to accomplish salvation gently, humbly, and gracefully for you. All right, that then is a quick look at the Old Testament and gospel readings for the first Sunday of Epiphany. God grant you every good gift as you meditate upon these texts and hear them again on Sunday. God grant you every blessing if you're teaching this to others. And until we speak again, the Lord order your days and your deeds in his peace. Amen.